So this afternoon I'm joined by Associate Professor Geoffrey Louis. Thanks for joining me, Jeff. Thanks, Anya. So I just thought I'd mention where I'm from. I, I'm the head of the academic unit of psychiatry and addiction medicine at the Australian National University Medical School and always glad to be a guest on Transforming Perceptions. We've worked together in a, in a hopefully mutually I- I enjoyable uh, workflow for nearly, nearly 10 years now. Yeah, I think we need to have a party, Jeff. This has been a really tough year. <laughs> uh, I, se- I second that. <laughs> yeah, we should we should be celebrating the uh, the long uh, the long association because uh, I think it's important at the moment to treasure and value the really great things that you have in life, especially those long collegial relationships. Uh, yeah. And I very much value you sharing your uh, breadth of knowledge and experience with me and, and coming from that clinical perspective and, and allowing me to sit in the space of being uh, a person who's a peer with lived experience, but also bringing my own uh, personal experience from my own life. And it's now quite getting to be a long life. So we are going to be talking about aged care. We were talking about that in our last discussion, but I think this is a very relevant subject for people in the ACT, given that we have an, a, a large ageing population, I believe, and many people from overseas who came here to work in the Snowy Mountains scheme and who migrated even after that to Canberra for various different roles, but who are perhaps ageing and looking to either go into uh, some sort of aged care support or who are already in the support and their families are providing care at, at various degrees within that system. And especially in light of the Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety. Yes, it's, it's really a, an important area, as you said, that where an ageing population was slightly... With slightly the average median uh, the, or the median age here in ACT is 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 37. It's close to the Australian average. This is from the uh, the 2016 census data, and we're probably about just over 30,000 people here, approximately, with who are over the age of 65. Now that's kind of debatable whether we call those people aged nowadays. They're probably older adults, and then aged potentially shifts to older, older people, which would be 75 years plus. So, and that they're a growing group of people as well. So it, it's definitely an important area and a much neglected area in discussions in society and also regulation and provision of adequate support and care. Mm. And I know that we've noted in previous conversations about this topic that in some cases, it's not only people who are in that older age bracket who are residing in aged care facilities, but there are sometimes people with disability who are younger or early onset dementia, Jeff. Yes, that's right. And that's been one of the failings of the overall system is that there's not enough customization, firstly for older people in residential aged care, but also for people with different needs, including disability, cultural and linguistic diversity, younger people. And I recall that we had a discussion previously, one of the discussions perhaps we had with Dr. Tony Jones and said, and had at that time in the discussion, canvassed the issue about younger people being aged care in aged care facilities. And there had been concern ex- expressed about this. And in the broader perspective, if the environment wasn't necessarily suitable for younger people, what did it say about the environment for older people mm. in aged care facilities? Mm. And the, it's, a, it's an important issue about appropriate, humane care and respect for people's rights across the lifespan so that they can access good, supportive, and as some of the articles that you sent to me, accountable care. Mm. Yeah, that conversation we had, that was in early November last year, uh, 2019. And uh, people can find that in our list of podcasts if they want to listen back to it because we had that conversation after the initial report came out from the Aged Care Quality Safety Royal Commission and the report was called Neglect 
But subsequent to that, we've had COVID. So I might read this article as you were referring to the articles just to give people a kind of broad background to the topic. And this is from The Conversation and it's written by Eileen Webb, Professor of Law and Ageing, Justice and Society, University of South Australia. So Christy M. Gardner, Associate Lecturer of Law, University of Newcastle, and Teresa Soames. Associate Lecturer at Macquarie University and the article is dated October 21st so it's today which is when we're doing our recording and it's titled Despite more than 30 major inquiries governments still haven't fixed aged care why are they getting away with it? And it states at the top of the article this is an, a part of our series on aged care and you can read the other articles in the series. So I've posted these articles to the Transforming Perceptions Facebook page. Or if you don't want to go there, you can have a look at the conversation and just Google that. But I'll read from the top. Australia's aged care sector has been subject of more than 30 major inquiries and reviews since 1997. And I think we mentioned that in a number of the shows we've done on this topic. It is fair to say the findings have been highly critical of the way aged care is run in this country. Many of these concerns have been brought to light again, along with new issues raised in the ongoing Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety. Yet, as the Royal Commission has noted, successive Australian governments have shown a lack of willingness to commit to change. Even the establishment of the Royal Commission was not based on previous inquiries or recommendations, but in response to media exposés of the appalling conditions in some aged care facilities. From these dysfunctional circumstances, three questions arise. First, what are the ongoing issues with aged care in Australia? Second, why have successive governments been comfortable making do with piecemeal solutions rather than truly fixing aged care once and for all? Finally, and most perplexingly, why have Australian voters let them get away with it? And then there's a heading It says, what's the problem? It is important to emphasise that aged care is predominantly a federal government responsibility. The 1997 Aged Care Act is the main law covering government-funded aged care. This includes rules for funding, regulation, approval of providers, quality of care and the rights of those in care. Since 2019, the Federal Aged Care Quality and Safety Commission Act regulates complaints, sanctions and enforcement, but has been criticised for lacking teeth. The 1997 Act diluted many pre-existing regulatory protections, such as strict financial accreditation and staffing requirements, and opened the sector up to privatisation. At the time, concerns were raised the new regime could compromise standards of care in aged care facilities and disadvantage older people on lower incomes. The concerns were raised again and amplified in subsequent years. The example in 2011, a Productivity Commission report, noted Australia's aged care system needed a fundamental redesign. Here is a brief summary of the recurring issues raised in multiple reports. The huge difficulty people have navigating the aged care system, including finding accurate information about facilities. Failure to meet the needs of vulnerable older people. Poor quality care, especially for those with dementia and other disabilities. The use of chemical or physical restraints. Inappropriate staff ratios and poor training. The rising cost of care, especially in light of an ageing population. Adherence to accreditation standards. Ineffective complaints mechanisms. Why haven't these problems been fixed? One of the major hurdles to real reform is the relationship between the aged care industry and the federal government. The government funds the sector and provides a relatively light-touch oversight, while the providers attend to the day-to-day -day running of the facilities. However, there is concern this alignment has meant successive governments are not as involved as they should be, and proposals for change are diluted by the influence of industry lobbyists. Another reason for government's reluctance to intervene is many of the providers are too big to fail. A facility's licence and government funding can be withdrawn if standards are not met, yet this rarely happens. Why? Because if a licence is revoked, residents need somewhere to go. The issues here can be seen in the closure of the Earl Haven Nursing Home in July 2019. 
Here, 68 elderly people were left homeless and had to be moved to hospitals and other aged care facilities. As further example, Bupa, one of Australia's largest provider, continues to operate despite sanctions or failing fundamental assessments. Why isn't aged care a vote winner? After so many inquiries and so many horror headlines, the problems in aged care are well and truly common knowledge. But do Australians care enough about aged care for it to influence their vote, and so influence the way governments respond? If we cast our minds back to the 2019 federal election campaign, the hot-button issue concerning older people was the potential devise of franking credits and negative gearing. In-home and residential care barely rated a mention in the campaigns of the major parties. Even now, despite the publicity surrounding the Royal Commission, if an election was held today, would this issue actually influence voting intentions? Sadly, it seems unlikely. During the July 2020 Eden Monaro by-election, a survey of nearly 700 voters showed while 84% believed the aged care system was in crisis, this influenced the vote by less than 4% of respondents. It also ranked last in a list of seven issues of importance. When heartfelt concern does not translate to winning votes, there is little incentive for the federal government to provide meaningful solutions to well-documented problems. We only need to look to the record spending in the 2020 budget, which provided only 23,000 extra home care packages and deferred consideration of funding for residential aged care until the Royal Commission's final report next year. It comes back to voters. Why does concern for the plight of people in aged care fail to generate public action? We suggest it is because many Australians consciously or unconsciously have ageist attitudes that older people are inherently not important. On this front, look no further than arguments made by prominent commentators about the fate of older people during COVID-19. Yes, most fair-thinking Australians care about our older citizens, yet until either we or our family members are directly impacted, we do not prioritise it. If we don't care enough or care about other things more, nothing will change. And while this remains the case... The government will have no reason to do more than just tinker with an unsatisfactory status quo. So that's that article from the conversation. Despite more than 30 major inquiries, governments still haven't fixed aged care. Jeff, I'll hand over to you. I, I do note that we've probably covered all of those various points or, or the writers have listened to our podcast, perhaps. <laughs> yes, maybe. Uh, I, I wanted to pick up on what mentioned about ageism and I think that that's, that is a crucial issue in how public policy in relation to older people has been framed and the article kindly provided a link to um, University of Melbourne Centre for Workplace Leadership article by Drs Josh Healy and Ruth Williams who did a survey of about a thousand people aged 18 to 70 uh, in a representative type sampling and looked at issues of how people viewed ageing in relation specifically to ageist thinking. And the most common type of finding was that beliefs about succession. And from their article, put simply, this view states that things of value should be actively passed on from one group to another at an appropriate time. Older people are seen negatively in this view when they fail to actively make way for others and are instead seen to unfairly hold onto positions of status and power. And then the second type of, most common type of ageism was stereotyping of older people. And this occurs when attitudes are formed out of incomplete, obsolete, or mistaken beliefs. And the stereotypes can lead to discriminatory behavior. I think particularly the first type of ageism factors into a lot of the conversations that we hear about uh, intergenerational issues. And their frame is intergenerational issues in my personal view, almost like a euphemism for covering this issue of what Drs. Healy and Williams have mentioned about this issue about succession, that older people should somehow make way. And behind that, I think, in terms of the, the principles, is, is a really concerning ethical issue about people exist across a lifespan and they're surely entitled to uh, fair treatment across the entire lifespan, not just measured, strictly speaking, in terms of how long one has left to live. And that, that of course, in a reality can be an issue in situations where there are crises, but 
short of that, it's it's a very narrow view to have of people about their value related to issues of succession. And I think that this is often, in my view, mixed in with the discussions about how aged care facilities and provision for care of older people in the community is viewed. Often you hear discussions around, oh, it'll cost a great deal of money and we're, we're not really set up for that and we're really worried about younger people as if it were some sort of invidious contest between younger and older people. When, if you look at the broader picture, and even now in the context of COVID-19, it's whilst most of the mature adults are not what we would regard as older people, a lot of younger people are in fact staying with their parents or older adults because of the various terrible consequences economically of Mm. the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's a couple of things that that sort of drop out of that for me too, and I'm looking at the findings as well. And it doesn't say anything here about culture. I wish that they had spoken about that or looked at that. And I wonder whether or not they actually looked at that and whether or not some communities are more have beliefs that you take care of your older people yeah. when when they age and that they are valued you know there's many uh, cultural communities that have those sorts of beliefs and they care for the family member in the home and so they value them and in you know even with the italians i'll have to i'll just mention the italians even with the Italians, even after a person's passed away, they still visit the deceased person in the, the graveyard. Yes. In Italy, this is the thing that's done, you know. People go down, they leave flowers or, you know. So they still treat them as if they're still part of the the their the life that's going on. So it, I think it's a real different way of thinking, which is probably not the way that the larger this is just my opinion, uh, what I've seen in Australia where often once somebody becomes elderly and if it's accompanied by uh, ageing issues of Alzheimer's and such things where care is complicated for that person, they might need higher level of care. There's no sort of thinking about what will happen when the family member becomes older or what what happens when mum and dad get older. There's no planning, there's... And then it's suddenly upon you and the decisions are all have to be made in such a rush. I know that's nothing to do with ageism, but it's about thinking about the aging process. So I'm sort of, I don't see those things sort of sitting in there amongst the findings, but I do agree that there is. And now, I mean, I'm over 60 and there is a sort of sense if you're trying to get employment that you are no longer uh, of any value. Uh, There's certainly ageism in employment, ageism in statistics, in employment, even if you have a disability and you're looking for a job, you're not listed as actively looking unless you've let Centrelink know that you're actively looking for a a job. So it does seem that there is this sense that once you're over the hill, that's it and you can be forgotten about. And I, I know what you're referring to about the funding, thinking about in terms of mental health care, putting dollars in at the this end of the lifespan where people are younger and perhaps at risk of developing a, a mental health problem or who are developing a mental health problem. But equally so, as you say, if we talk about, and in mental health sector, we do talk about having well-being across the lifespan, but in terms of the reality, we don't see the dollars going in at the other end, which is, I think, what you were saying. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree, Anya. It's certainly the case that there is an appropriate degree of focus on younger people. It results in a neglect of the care for older people across all aspects of health, but particularly in areas that are marginalised, like mental health. It, it's your, your subset of a subset, and the, the older people with mental health problems are least often considered in in specific planning for services because they don't often have a prominence in the public discourse and therefore don't have any champions, so to speak. Mm. And as is common with, in general with a lot of care or the majority of care for younger people, it is something that society and all of us care about deeply because 
the young, younger people will grow into the adults of, of the future. And the focus on that is not necessarily directly detracting from older people so much as it crowds out the space for discussion about even uh, adult mental health issues and older adult issues because of the overall resource-poor nature of mental health care provision and care across the lifespan, it definitely suffers from a lack of trickle through to uh, later epochs of life. Mm. But it's a bit silly really, isn't it? Because young people do grow older. And so this sort of head in the sand ostrich approach is, I think, in terms of, we've been talking about this for a long time. We've been talking about this topic for 10 years. You've probably been talking about it for even longer than that. Yep. As the article refers to the 30 years of <laughs> Yeah, we've been trying to lobby across the profession yeah. with the community to have just an equitable provision of mental health care across the entire lifespan, mm. uh, especially and, and in general for health care for older people. Mm. Yeah, because ultimately younger people are going to end up older, but we don't want to think about it until we arrive at that space. And, yeah, I and, think a and that is there. that. Well, yeah, yeah the, I think there's a stigma, but it's also it's a denial because yes. yeah, we grow, right. we're growing older, yes, and that's right. we're living longer, and we have, we're not. There's not as many young people coming along as yes. there were in past uh, yeah. decades. So there are a lot more older people, and we've said this before. So it really is like let's it's the too hard basket and I think the article captures it and I know that Dr. Tony Jones has said in the past it's not a vote getter. Yeah. And and you this is this is an issue but I got to tell you Jeff I'm thinking about it. I've had conversations with my kids. Uh, I'm concerned about what will happen to me as I get older. I'll be 61 in a couple of months. And what if I end up with Alzheimer's? I'm not my granny and, and mum have that. What if I end up with Alzheimer's? Who's going to care for me? What's going to happen to the cats? I think we really do need to start thinking about it. it maybe the lobbying needs to come from those of us who are <laughs> approaching this point where we need to really have some plans in place and have discussions with our family members about what it is that we what kind of care we want yeah i think that's that's an important approach because in fact what they're referring to in relation to the last election about issues that touched upon the concerns of older people who had investments and also were involved in negative gearing was in fact they were lobbying their own family to about these issues and that 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 i think relates to what you've mentioned that People who are facing moving into the next stage of life where they'll technically be classified as older, that's an important group of people to consider uh, the role of advocacy and trying to get more adequate provision of care. And I, I agree with you too that younger people now will expect to live for even longer period of time. So the paradox is if we're going into these equations, which I don't necessarily endorse about succession, some of the older, younger people now will potentially live to about 100 years, which means unless they keep working until they're 85 or 90, they'll potentially be retired and have to access some sort of aged care services for decades. And it'll be the people younger than them that will have to provide the economic resources for that. So these issues of succession are for any, any human society across the lifespan. And it's a little bit simplistic in my view uh, to say that it's a clear succession issue because all of the older people will, to some extent, depend on the resources of younger people and then younger people also have to depend on the resources of, of older people. How many older people, especially during COVID-19, have been looking after grandchildren or great-grandchildren uh, during, the, during the, the lockdowns? while people were working, even even do, even with the restrictions. And so it, it's, it's, it's about a equitable provision and then being holistic in the approach to see that people should be and necessarily must be valued 
as human beings, mm. whatever your age. I mean, I have to say, it really makes me think of my dad who passed away uh, three years ago last week and he did not want to go into a nursing home. He'd seen my mother in the nursing home. He'd seen her experience, and I've mentioned this previously when we've had discussions about aged care, about uh, her being left in, you know, tied to a chair and these various things. He did not want that for him. And I, you know, I was mixed thoughts about what kind of care was the best care for dad, given that he he wasn't, you know, he had some capacity issues in terms of his uh, making decision, decision making capacity. But he was pretty pretty much all right, except for all the other conditions that he probably never thought about when he was 50 or 60, probably never thought he was going to have problems with his heart or blood pressure or or diabetes. These are all the things, or arthritis or any of that, or or that he might become bedridden or anything. I mean, these are all things that come upon us. We don't know what what's going to happen physically until we start experiencing it at this point. Uh, there's no, I haven't had a DNA test, I don't know about you, to find out whether or not you've got particular uh, prevalence to developing something. But this is, it's a real, um, I, I just think the government needs to actually really step up and say we need to really plan and I think an intelligent government and an intelligent society really sits down and says let's plan how this is best done for our community. What are the best programs that we can have available, training for staff, what sort of facilities uh, and a variety of facilities do we need to have or do people want to stay at home? Do they have a right to stay at home? Uh, I think there needs to be a a really broad discussion with community members uh, about what can be done because certainly if anything, COVID has shown us and there, there were people in the aged care system who sadly passed away and they were in there, as you said, they were centenarians. And so people can live to these longer lives yeah. and, and, and be doing so in, in, you know, in a, a way that's meaningful and enjoying their life. But if they're not protected and if services aren't provided in a way that ensure that they're properly protected and, and getting the best treatment and that they have choice, well, then... You know, that's deeply, deeply concerning. I'm sorry, yeah, I'm not really sure where that, I'm going with this, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that they are important issues that people need to consider. And years ago, Professor Tom Burns wrote a book called The Unnecessary Shadow, in which he touched upon the issues about people feeling uncomfortable about discussing issues like mental health and also related to that, ageing and other aspects of life and this is a general issue across healthcare that people find it generally challenging to consider that they may become disabled, they may develop an illness, they they will get older and that they may need care and support. The difficulty is that if people are uncomfortable with having that discussion about it, then it becomes, as you already mentioned, often a crisis when something arises mm. and then there's not a lot of time to consider what options one has because you're forced into a system that hasn't really been designed very carefully mm. and it's a it's a quite a big change in our thinking process to think in a sense there but for the grace of god go i mm. in, in and i mean that in anticipating what what might happen to your future self in a way and that that's that's a different level of thinking that we have to consider in a, in, a, in a broader society. What we would like to have in terms of care for ourselves and how we would want to consider. But that involves necessarily uncomfortable thoughts in a way that, you know, about mortality, about aging, about developing mental or physical ill health, and that you might need help and that your independence may be curved as a result. But we have to start the discussions and thinking about that. I think I saw once that they were having some programs for primary school children about death and dying. And I think perhaps depends on the developmental level of children. They will have some conception of death, but perhaps 
we should be more careful how we frame it in terms of the ways that children, uh, younger adults and older adults can uh, mature and older adults can consider those concepts because it would also be premature to try to introduce concepts which are very hard for younger people to really understand. And of course, I appreciate that may sound uh, paternalistic, but it's also about uh, being respectful that they have a have a life to live too, and trying to confront them with certain aspects of of life isn't necessarily going to be successful or good for their health. Just like in any the development of any young person, they often have to learn things and make some mistakes in order to really understand uh, what their choices are and what they want to do with their lives. And we don't want to predetermine for people, but it's providing a framework to, to consider that people live uh, as full and successful lives, but also to accept that we are, are frail and that we may need help. Hmm. I mean, I have to say my upbringing with my family, my father immigrating to this country from a culture that actually does talk about life and death. So there was an awareness of that from for me for a very young age, but also I had uncles and aunties who passed away from cancer and we would go in the car to visit those persons at the hospital and then you'd attend the family funeral and you knew what it was about and if you had questions, you'd ask the questions about what happened and my parents were generally pretty good with giving answers about what had yep. happened and you know I I grew up with that kind of awareness I think there's an attitude now that children perhaps need to be protected from this from the reality of life that you know as my dad says you know uh, we we there's only one sure thing in life and that's that you will die yeah and he was absolutely spot on so we should be factoring that in thinking about that but not kids taking kids to funerals or to the hospital or whatever. I'm, as I said, my dad passed away three years ago and some of the photos and memories have come up on Facebook for me recently yes. where there we are at the hospital and it was a sudden thing. I was actually in a meeting with the former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull and Greg Hunt at the time and in Sydney and then I got a phone call to rush to the hospital and I had to rush over there. Mm. And all the family came in and we were all there and I slept at the hospital on, in the visitor's room. And the little kids were there, all the little kids were yeah. there in the hallway trying not yeah. to make too much noise. My sister was playing the violin in the room with my dad. Yes. They were having glasses of wine, drinking to dad, playing in music late at night, nice music, and various things. Everybody was around and we even had my son's uh, 40th birthday cake in there because his birthday had to be cancelled. But there's a real sort of celebration of life and an awareness that my father was going to pass. And the children were exposed to that. Yes. And equally involved in participation at the funeral, attending the graveside and everything. That's my culture. Yeah. And uh-huh. I think there is that real awareness. They're not, they're not frightened of it because they know that it's a thing that happens. Yes. And I think that that's... that's the approach. There's various different cultural approaches, and that's also something that is a good avenue to to bring in to the discussion with children in traditional Chinese culture. Most houses have shrines to the ancestors, mm. and you have a long list of names, which are all your forebears mm. in the house, and people light incense and pay respect to their ancestors, including on during the August Moon Festival visiting the ancestors at the cemetery or at the crematorium site, wherever they're located. So that that introduction of the, the span of life is important. And there, there is a cultural aspect as well, which you touched on. And I think that that's a good way to introduce it in a, in a manner that, that normalizes. What I was trying to refer to was not preventing children from discussing it, was the education the right framing to discuss it yeah edu- education in schools yeah. but i do think that there are some books that have been written that are yeah. resources for teachers to, to yes. discuss this kind of topic because uh, what we're really talking about is attitudinal change and awareness raising yes. uh, from across the lifespan we can't expect that people are going to do something about it and the age care if they don't realise that 
the importance of that end yes. of life situation. That's right. They don't understand. If they don't understand, and and it and it needs to possibly encompass. There's a, a broad range of issues that are being discussed, whether or not people should choose. There's a, a a consultation I think that's happening soon. It's through the Healthcare Consumers Association. What does a good death look like? I mean, I was mm. a bit horrified by the <laughs> yeah. the way that that was framed for multicultural yeah. communities. I I just didn't think that sort of made sense. But it's about thinking about what choices yes. uh, you can make, but also whether or not you know, things that we aren't talking about, which aren't sort of a part of the discussion, but perhaps yeah. should be about whether or not people can have a choice to euthanize if their health is very serious, issues are very serious or, mm-hmm. you know, perhaps it needs to be a really big, if we open up the topic to all of those sorts of possibilities of what care should look like, yes. then perhaps that engages more people into yes. a discussion. Yes. Anyway, that's just, just my thoughts because I'm thinking about it a lot <laughs> at the moment, my own mortality, I suppose. Yeah, and I think that that's a good way to frame across all the issues across a lifespan and that, that could be, and certainly I'm not an expert on earlier childhood or or elementary level education uh, so it's it's something that's important to to work with the appropriate developmental level of of younger people and then to also interweave as you talked about the various different approaches from various cultures that are part of Australian society how people view it across aging uh, ill health and and across the the lifespan and i think that would help provide a better perspective for people and that that can that needs to start right across and needs to start at school but also across the the lifespan to think about and plan people have to plan for 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 retirement or at least to be able to have enough resources so that they can have the quality of life that they want and also then to think about care provision when they're older or unexpected costs. And these are best taken, uh, these decisions taken as people go through their lives. And of course, the, even you're thinking about what you want, might want will change. And that usually does seem to change as people approach the, the uh, specified event or the date of something that's happening. Mm. And you, can I say something to you too, Jeff? Some, I think it was four years ago when we did a, a, a talk about the Tin Man and does he have a heart and does it really matter? And it was about the introduction of potentially having robots and mm-hmm. um, artificial intelligence in aged care. Yes. We were discussing about allocation of funding to research. And yep. I think I was really banging on about the humane care yes. aspect and how important it is to get that right because... We've been talking about that for a long time. Yes. And I, I thought, well, you know, government puts money into research, but what about the other end where people, the service delivery end and everything? But I, I actually want to apologise to you because after COVID, one has to think if there was some sort of uh, cure for Alzheimer's, perhaps people could live longer in their own homes and they might not have been in the nursing home and been vulnerable to COVID. I mean, that's just, it's simplistic really because there was a raft of things that failed in terms of people contracting COVID. But I do see the importance of investing in the research uh, particularly after what's happened this year, to perhaps give people that better quality of life in terms of being able to maybe not uh, be living with symptoms of Alzheimer's. Yeah, I, I don't think any apology is necessary in any, any way, shape or form. I think that we need to work at research, and that's why research is broad-based. We try to work at research of course, that immediately, certainly as a healthcare professional, as a doctor, we try to work at research that will improve care as, as it is now. We try to look at options in provision of care, the, the existing services, how they can be improved, because we want to do better 
every single day we try to do better for the service and care of uh, people and their health. But we also must put funding into longer-term research, which sometimes is regarded as blue sky, but you never know where it ends up. And without those sorts of discoveries, those developments, we won't have the improvements in broader health, that, such as the development of vaccines. If the research under that wasn't underpinned by years and years of, of, of steady work, we wouldn't have the access to, to vaccination. So that is just as important, that that research, which sometimes it's hard to work out where it'll, it'll land, and sometimes you'll end up with dead ends, which have to be abandoned in terms of the research. But if that, that crucial, fundamental, basic science, clinical science research is, is, is upended or sort of neglected for immediate interventions or improvement of existing care, we don't have a pipeline to try and develop better care for the future, things that we can't even consider, like, as you said, maybe there will be a, a, a direct cure for Alzheimer's disease or these other neurodegenerative disorders. Maybe they will work out what goes wrong with the fundamental molecular mechanisms and be able to intervene. People will pass away then from other causes, but maybe they'll have treatments for that. And so people's lives will be more fulfilling, more successful, and more healthy. Uh, so I think all all research is is important to you know from direct care and improvement of care to through to the basic sciences that underpin uh, medical care and that's one of the real tragedies overall is that again another element has come into a lot of discussions about research and I'll I'll curtail this discussion because it's it's not di so directly relevant but. We don't want to constrain research to things that have immediate outputs and might see, seem as they would have immediate economic health benefits uh, because that is too narrow a focus and it will leave us, in a sense, probably potentially marooned with only incremental improvements in, in care. And, and that's, that's why research funding, particularly for health and medical research, is, is essential to continue and a pure sort of rash economic rationalist approach, even uh, a, an approach that just looks at particular outputs, is not really, not really long-sighted. Doesn't doesn't address future needs. Mm. Can we discuss the recommendations briefly? Yes. So I, I think that the, the privatisation is still something that's important to to note because it's actually a major part. And I'll keep it brief, but it's a it's a it's a difficulty that we have in the regulation of the sector, and that's something uh, pointed out in the companion piece that you sent me from Professor Joseph Ibrahim that there's a light touch sort of regulation, and that that's what limits uh, our ability to respond to recommendations from the, the Royal Commission on Older People. So yeah, the first one is the Australian government should report to the Parliament by no later than the 1st of December 2020 on the implementation of the recommendations. That's the first recommendation. The second recommendation is the Australian government should immediately fund providers that apply for funding to ensure there are adequate staff available to allow continued visits to people living in residential aged care by their families and friends. And Doris was kind enough to share her personal experience of what that's been like across this period of COVID. And the third recommendation from the report is the Australian government should urgently create Medicare benefits schedule items to increase the provision of allied health services, including mental health services, to people in aged care during the pandemic. Any barriers, whether real or perceived, to allied health professionals being able to enter residential aged care facilities should be removed unless justified on genuine public health grounds. Uh, and then there's the section on discussion around a national advisory body and plan. The font is very small, so you might be able to discuss that, but I, I don't feel that any of those recommendations go far enough. They don't talk really about the structural problems. Um, no, but, I don't think they do. And I think that was my reading of it initially, that they addressed some lower level structural issues, like as you've, as you've read them out. 
but they don't address the issue of overall governance, which is partly what Professor Ibrahim has mentioned, that there has to be a, a systematic review of, but also action. And it, it's difficult because it's such a large system and it consists of largely private sector or voluntary sector, uh, NGO sector providers. And the regulation so loose, it's hard to get a clear picture of what's going on in the system, apart from, obviously, as they reported, that they were in the limited ability that they had to audit, that some of the providers were not providing adequate levels of care. So, But it was very much, this was very much taken, and there are yeah. two more recommendations. Recommendation yeah. four, which has got a, a number of sub recommendations and five and six yes. but this was sort of very much in the context of COVID and yes and, that's right and doesn't really look at those long-term systemic issues which have been ongoing for well as long as you've been and I have been yes. talking but yeah. longer even still yes that's right I mean that's part of the difficulty of the COVID situation is it's focused and as as in Professor Ibrahim's article it's exposed the frailties in the system that exists, and I think I think many of his suggestions are uh, are really helpful in trying to look at a broader picture. And I think that's the danger with a crisis like COVID-19, and that's been similar to what we've had experience of when we talked about mental health issues. Mm. Is that there's a lot of action, or or the, at least the semblance of action, when a crisis occurs, and then when everything the crisis has passed. Most of the, most of the concerns and the policies fall off the table, mm. and and we, the, the promises we, fall yeah. away. <laughs> yes, yeah. it drops away from public consciousness, and we don't. I mean, even with what precipitated the Royal Commission, those images of what was going on in the aged care facility, uh, they were covered in the media, and now they've been obviously displaced by the issues with the COVID nineteen pandemic refocused again because of the tragedies that occurred in aged care facilities, but they exposed the ongoing problems. And I think Professor Ibrahim's article, which is in the conversation as well, has talked about more transparency, more accountability, a comprehensive suite of quality performance indicators to measure each facility's performance, uh, an annual national expert review of serious incidents, and an annual and a national register that gathers data on facility on quality of life and health outcomes for aged care residents. And he says it'll take guts to to organise a system like this and also to give a voice to people who are living in aged care facilities, which he says is neglected. And I think that's pointing in the, in the right uh, direction. He says that residents need someone to be accountable, but they're effectively stateless. And, and that, you know... Yeah, I, I think that that point that he's made in the article, um, yeah. if we have the guts to give older uh, people a fair go, this is how we fix aged care in Australia. And he speaks, which I thought was really important, he talks about human rights yeah. and he talks about putting the residents should be the focus, but they're not heard. So right. he said, in the first instance, aged care must be designed from the perspective of the person it's intended to serve, the older person. Yes. Residential aged care should be a place where older people thrive. Yes. Not simply a place where they go to die, the Elysian Fields, I think you called them. Yes. But currently residential aged care operates according to what's convenient for government, aged care providers and hospitals. So it's really, yeah, very, yes, no wonder my father did not want to go into care, although when he did have some care, he did very nicely there. Thank you very much. Uh, they were fabulous. But... This is not the case everywhere, and uh, it's yeah. a concern that that those voices haven't been included. And it says here, participatory decision making is a fundamental concept in society or society generally. An yeah. example would be the public consultation about urban renewal projects and in healthcare specifically, but it doesn't exist in aged care. Now, why is that? Yeah, because they're not regarded in people in aged care, and older people aren't considered in representative democracy that's what he's he's talking about that sort of representation and it it reminds me of one of the issues that we talked about in parallel with with mental health services and this also would equally apply to aged care services if they're designed in a specific way which he's alluding to here that they're designed as functional components to work in a particular system in a particular bureaucracy and administration the danger is, and 
I've written about this with, with colleagues as well, that the system is in a sense designed to meet the needs of the administration rather than mm. the people that are being cared for. Mm. And that, that leads to excessive levels of bureaucracy, but a system that is run from the administration down. And as Professor Abram has pointed out, that the voice of the, the resident the aged care, per- the aged person, isn't heard because the planning is what we can put in, what the administration can put into place, what resources we have, what budget we've decided, and this is a, a rhetoric that I hear across mental health care. Well, we've only got this much in the budget. That's all we can provide. And well, what what do people who have mental health problems actually want? That's that's crucial, rather than well, we've got only this much budget, and that's what we can provide. Mm-hmm. Uh, that 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 is that is also echoed here in what Professor Ibrahim has mentioned. I think that the system is designed as as a as an institution in a way, mm-hmm. and it's not not geared around the person. What Tony spoke to us about before about person-centered care, mm-hmm. that it should be organized around the person and their wishes in a in a humane manner, just like all of us would like for ourselves. Mm. that we want to be able to make the decisions about our own care and, mm. and have them respected and, and resourced as is possible. Of course, there's not an infinite amount of resources, but to simply raise an edifice of a system that's an institution, has its own administration, its own bureaucracy, and say, well, that's what exists. We've only got this much budget. We, we'll have to just make some decisions about what, what to do. That, that's the system. They, these are the systems that we're facing at the present time. And when we're trying to argue for resources to expand the efficacy of services, we often pull back to this idea that, oh, well, this is the budget that we've got. And when you ask un- fundamentally, it's like, how did you come up with that budget? Uh, there often aren't any answers. I was fortunate enough to interview Rianne Williams just last week, who discussed uh, the work that she's been doing in terms of making economic arguments on the value of particular programs and services. Do we need to do that, do you think, in aged care, Jeff? Do we need to, rather than looking at the qualitative data, do we need to look at the quantitative data about the value in terms of against the dollars spent? Well, I think that, that that's fair in any... Because, of course, all, all society's resources are finite. So, of course, we need to be responsible with how we spend our, uh, our, our funds. I don't know whether we should entirely adopt all the aspects in relation to the health economics because it also seeds to an argument that there necessarily must be an inherent economic value in providing such care. At one level, of course, it's essential that the care is provided and that it must be done in an equitable, fair manner and that we have to use finite resources. But there's also something that rankles and that's something that Professor Steve Kizzerly and I touched on in our response to the Productivity Commission inquiry uh, in relation to mental health, that economic value and you know, economic uh, understandings are not the only perspective that we have in terms of human life, mm-hmm. and that we have to take that broader perspective about people's rights, their wishes, and try to balance it. I'm not saying that's easy. We've we're still struggling with it, obviously, uh, but I think that it's just as it's just as relevant to make the economic arguments if you're providing services that are efficient, that people are having good quality of care. You measure their outcomes, but we shouldn't just look at the economic outcomes. We need to measure the quality of the care provided, the older person's experience of the care. That also needs to be measured and understood, and also one of the quality measures. Mm. Mm. So where are we at with this discussion? I think we we it's it's I think we we're recognizing that we've got the challenges ahead and as as these articles that we've touched on have indicated their challenges ahead I think some of them that we've discussed today are well summarized that we have to begin conversations cross life and with respect to people's culture and diversity about health physical and mental uh disability and changes across the lifespan, including increasing disability or illness and the need to get care 
lifespan. Those, that's the framing, I think, that partly helps us in the discussion to, in relation to lobbying and effective provision of care across the lifespan. That's going to take time to change, but it's worthwhile continuing to try to do that because working from crisis to crisis, which is what's been exposed with uh, the problems with aged care with COVID-19, means that we're continually reactive and then it matching that metaphor of we're putting out a little fire and then we're just ignoring that you know other fires will arise and problems will uh, arise in, in the future because the focus is only on that shorter term uh, time frame. Mm-hmm. And we need to also argue for more humane planning of services that they, they look at they look at quality measures and there has to be better coordination. That is the governance, which is something we've argued for in mental health care. There has to be more governance in terms of coordination and working at level levels, including specifically the voices of people with a mental illness, people who are aged, and then also health professionals working at the coalface. Mm. Rather than having a system that's designed from the top up from an administrative viewpoint, chained to a sort of bureaucracy and a budget. Mm. I, I had a brilliant thought about that when I was in the shower the other day. I was thinking about this, the way that things are in the mental health sector at the moment. I'd had a conversation with somebody who said, oh, yes, but we've got that to fix that problem oh, and we're doing that to fix that problem. And I thought, you know what, there's a problem here. When you're building anything, and I recently, I know this is going to sound like a crazy analogy, but actually it, it does make sense. A builders will understand what I'm talking about. If you've ever tried to renovate an old house, you'll find that often the walls aren't straight. They might appear to be, but they aren't. The walls aren't straight. The window frames might be out by a bit. If you think that you can just slot something in next to something and it'll all fit, that's not how it actually works. When you're building anything, sometimes you have to make adjustments. You might actually order so many bricks and then find that, oh, I actually need a half a brick to go here in between here so that I can strengthen that corner of that little wall that I'm building there. And it means constant adjustments and looking out for those spaces where something isn't, but that the reinforces the structure of a thing and I think that's what's gone out of the mental health sector and perhaps it's gone out of aged care too is the, the the being aware that okay we don't just assume that we can have a program or um, something just slots in like so and so and so and it just all fits it it possibly may not and we need to be alert to those gaps that appear yep. and be creative then in how we're going to uh, resolve that to ensure that we've got strong structures. And I know it's a crazy kind of analogy, but having built a barbecue area last year and into this year and discovering that, you know, I thought I had enough bricks and even when I measured it and measured it again, it ended up with me needing to make adjustments. And I think that's just, I think that's just why our previous system, which we discussed with Doris, Little little services popped up that were niche services that filled a gap that linked yes. to something else. That's right. And at the moment we've got all this big stuff and people are still not being able to find their way around and in some cases not necessarily getting their needs met. Or Anyway, the journey goes on, Jeff. Agreed. And I think there's an analogy that we use in, in research. If the, if the map differs from the terrain, believe the terrain. It's a Norse proverb. And it's true, you need to make adjustments as you go along. And those grassroots organizations were at the coalface. They were providing services to people and they could more nimbly adapt and, and, and support people. So part of this sort of aspect of bureaucratization, professionalization, what we've talked about previously at least in passing, about policy entrepreneurs, large or large NGOs uh, building large structures. They're not really flexible enough. The model doesn't really necessarily fit. This could equally, of course, apply to our existing um, public and private sector uh, mental health services. We need to continue to try and adjust and adapt them according to the, the input of people who suffer from uh, mental illness or, and, and, of course, older people uh, and 
people across the lifespan. So we need to keep adjusting. So I think that's an important reminder that we have to keep trying to adapt. We can't just say, well, we can't, it can't solve it. And I think in every way, in every way, every day, people who are working in, in healthcare uh, with people with mental illness and older people uh, are, are trying to, to make adjustments. But there's often there's often a lack of resources and and and, and leeway to to make those changes, mm. which I think is important, as you said. Yeah, the innovative and the organic is what I'm referring to, and the humane. So you know, recognizing that that we need to, as you say, I think the adapting, but just to being meeting the persons where they are and meeting the needs where they are. But I think we're just about out of time. So I really appreciate your input. And I imagine we'll talk about aged care again. And the report, I think, is coming out in 2021, the final commission's report, and we'll see what happens from there. So this is a topic we've, we're following along, I hope. I think at the moment, I think it's important to remember that this COVID space is a moment in time. We don't know where it's going, whether or not there'll be a vaccine and whether or not the vaccine, a vaccine might work and uh, whether there's going to be further waves, it's really a time of being, as you say, nimble and adapting, Yes. but also ensuring that those structures are there and, and the best structures can be created to support us all across the lifespan because, yes, who knows where it's going, Jeff? Who knows? Yeah, and I think you're reminded to be a, a, adaptive and keep trying to innovate is essential. And we, it's, a, it's a good place to, to finish up. Mm. Well, thank you again for your time. I really appreciate it and everything. And yes, yeah, so we'll chat again, I'm sure. Thanks for having me again on the program. Okay.